Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with people who study them and people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. My name is Scott Novak, and I'll be your host on today's show. I'm a graduate CGHR student member here in Cambridge, and for this conversation, I was joined on our panel by Matt Mamoudi, a fellow CGHR graduate student. Our guest on this Declarations episode was Dr. Ella McPherson. She's a lecturer in the Sociology of New Media and Digital Technology and a fellow in Sociology at Queen's College, Cambridge. She's also a research associate of the Center of Governance and Human Rights, where she leads up the research theme on human rights in the digital age. Additionally, Ella leads The Whistle, a project which aims to develop a digital human rights reporting application. Ella, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Great. So I'd like to ask first about an interesting um, incident that I've you've done some work on in the past about a Syrian boy, a video of a Syrian boy where it shows him getting shot down. And this video got millions of views. Can you talk a little about your work on that? Yeah, I use that as a case really to illustrate the problem of verification of social media. It's a video that went viral uh, in, I think, November 2014 and was picked up by some mainstream news organizations on their, um, you know, the front pages, their home pages, um, which was called the Syria Hero Boy. And it had a, it was an image of a a video, a kind of very shaky, grainy video with kind of voices in the background um, of, a, of a dusty street and this little boy running along it getting shot at. It looked like sniper fire almost. There was no assailants. You just saw these kind of um, bursts of smoke from bullets. Um, and he's running and he gets, it looks like he gets shot. He falls down. He's about eight years old. He gets up miraculously and he goes and he runs behind a car and then he drags out an even smaller girl from behind the car and they run through bullets off camera. And it's like an extraordinary, um, looks like an extraordinary account of like genuine account of survival in the context of war um, and of children. And um, it, it went, it went viral, you know, this concept of the Syria hero mm-hmm. boy. And um, it was, I think, you know, there was something about, there's sort of various elements of it that sort of rang a bit untrue, um, especially for the BBC, which is the organization that eventually unmasked, um, uh, pretty quickly what was going on, but not quickly enough that it hadn't already gone viral. Um, and um, the first thing is that it was posted to a YouTube account that it only ever, I think, posted one other thing, or it was a very new account. So this video coming out of nowhere from this brand new account apparently is one sign that, that this might may not be what it seems, because usually when you get videos from activists, they will have been posting over a long period of time. Um, but the BBC started investigating and they pretty quickly found out this was an art project by a Norwegian director that was um, uh, paid for by the Norwegian government. Um, and um, it was put out there really as an, as an art experiment. Um, the director said it was really to change the narrative, especially around children in the context of the Syrian war. Um, but it was filmed, I think, in Malta on the set of The Gladiator. Yes, that's what I have here. I have a yeah. BBC story that details some of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I actually have a quote from the director, just to get a direct quote from him defending the clip, saying that by publishing a clip that could appear to be authentic, we hope to take advantage of a tool that's often used in war, make a video that claims to be real. We wanted to see if the film would get attention and spur debate, first and foremost, about children and war. We 
also wanted to see how the media would respond to such a video. And that's the end of his quote. So that, yeah, so that refers to it was an art project. Um, and it sounds like he's kind of trying to bring awareness to the fact that there is this problem of children and warfare. But do you think he went about that in the right way? Um, judging from the reaction to this video, um, he didn't get at all what he was trying to do. Um, and I think what this did was kind of expose... Um, all of the kind of hard work and investment that's done by journalists and human rights organizations, et cetera, in terms of verifying information, because their reaction was one of total anger, saying, you know, with this video, you've just undone all of the hard work we've been doing and trying to verify voices coming out of Syria, because now everyone's going to doubt everything they see coming out of Syria because of what you did. Mm -hmm. So it, it, no matter what he was trying to do around children, um, it, it, that conversation switched completely to one about verification and trustworthiness and credibility and truth, especially coming from the ground, from civilian witnesses. Absolutely. So this is one incident um, where people got confused. Well, they thought it was real. They got confused. It wasted the time of, I'm sure, so human rights groups tried to verify it. Um, and that's valuable resources that they can, could have been putting towards something else. Have there been other incidences like this within the past few years of false videos emerging of potential human rights abuses that have turned out not to be true? So what I hear from um, human rights uh, researchers on the ground who are actually looking at these videos is that by far, it's pretty rare for something to be completely staged like this. By far, the much more common thing is um, what they call misattribution. So it's having a video that was actually took place somewhere else that is scraped you know, which means it's sort of taken off YouTube uh, and, and reposted on another YouTube account um, and repurposed and sort of recontextualized. So when I first started this research project, one of the kind of little case studies that got me interested was talking to a researcher, a human rights researcher, who said that she had to deal with verifying um, this kind of hor horrific video of um, a beheading of, of someone who was sort of um, buried in, in sand and there were military boots around them. And the context claimed that it was Syria. But when she did a reverse image search and when she sort of really started looking around, she found that actually this was a video that had been made in Mexico and was part of the um, gang conflicts, this sort of drug gang conflicts in Mexico, but that had been taken by someone and the audio redone so that it was in Arabic instead of in Spanish and then um, posted claiming this was this was something that was going on in Syria. So this kind of... Um, uh, misattribution is actually the more common type of deception. And sometimes I'm not even sure how, sometimes it's very willful, but sometimes I'm not even sure how willful it is. It just may be that people pick up something and use it to illustrate something that is happening to them. They just don't have the video of it. Um, and there's a, there's a case documented by Witness, um, an NGO called Witness, um, which was of a water cannoning of someone who was sort of shackled to a tree or a post and they're kind of, men in uniform around this person. And this um, witness showed how it popped up in both in Mexico, Colombia, and Venezuela each time with the kind of, you know, the, the text entered below it saying it was a different kind of conflict between a farmer and the militia, conflict between a student and the police, etc., which probably were going on in all these places. It's just that they weren't, it wasn't actually that video, right? Wow. Okay. So, and, and along the, those lines as well, have there so in some cases it's been the video has been exposed as fraudulent, um, and so it hasn't been taken that seriously after that 
you know, we've had these journalists or human rights organizations expose that. Have there been cases where governments have taken action based on or NGOs have taken action based on late videos or evidence that they later found out not to be true? Um, or just out of curiosity, are you aware of any examples like that? Well, one, yeah. I mean, one example that comes up um, or comes to mind is really around um, the uh, chemical attacks in Ghouta, Syria, um, which were documented on by civilian witnesses and were coming out on social media well before they were sort of coming out in the media. I mean, sort of faster than they would have before the era of social media. And um, someone from the Russian government said, uh, this, these, these must be fake. <clears throat> we can't respond to these as if they're real because, <clears throat> sorry, the timestamp on them is um, on a different day. They thought it was false. The timestamp is that like when the videos were posted, is that without? Uh, what is the time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, okay. Exactly. So, um, so he said, it's not possible that this happened when they said it happened. Therefore, it must be a fake because the timestamp mm -hmm. is on a different day. Um, but this was actually kind of a lack of technical knowledge because the timestamp that gets put onto these videos is a timestamp in Silicon Valley. It's mm -hmm. a time in Silicon Valley. So yes, in Silicon Valley, it was a different day. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't actually also at the same time happening in Syria. Okay. That makes sense. So yes. Yes. So okay. rather than I'm talking rather than action on a false video, that's sort of inaction on a true video that was interpreted as false. As that false. Yes. Yeah. So because so it's fostered this suspicion of these videos yeah th these ty these types of false ones then can cast doubt on the true ones and that's the problem and that leads me i guess to the um the work that you're doing here with the whistle can you tell us um what is the whistle and why is this work important for human rights workers in the digital age sure so the whistle the whistle is an app in development here at cambridge um uh, with a great team and um what we're doing is uh, trying to solve some of the problems that I've seen via my research in terms of human rights documentation in the digital age. Um, and the whistle has kind of two key elements to it. One is a reporting um, platform, a reporting interface for civilian witnesses to report incidences of human rights violations. And the other part is a um, what we're calling the dashboard, which is for the um, human rights researcher to assist them in verification. So the particular problems we're trying to address are, number one, civilian witnesses really um, it, do not necessarily know how to produce ver verifiable information that a human rights NGO can act on. They don't understand that in order for something to be acted on, the researcher, because of how we all understand truth and facticity sort of socially and in, in the courts and in, in human rights systems, um, they, don't they don't necessarily understand that they need to um, provide cues as to location. So they don't know that they need to sort of pan videos if they're shooting outside. They don't know they need to state the date. So even though these may be horrific instances being documented, if they don't have this um, metadata what's known mm -hmm. as metadata embedded in the file, um, it's very hard for human rights workers to act on them. Um, and Matt, I know you're involved with the whistle as well. Do you have anything to add to what Ella is saying? Sure. I mean, so I think the most interesting part of, of the whistle is that the uh, the potential it presents for those who were previously able to engage with human rights violations um, to getting them involved in democratizing the voices. So I think 
Uh, for example, if you manage in some, if you if you can imagine in some community, uh, imagine a refugee camp uh, where uh, there is sexual violence, and and these things aren't being reported because the only thing you have available is a, a Nokia thirty three ten, and there's no authority in that camp. Uh, like, if you could have some kind of way of utilizing that old Nokia phone to say reporting this information to a local actor, and uh, having them be able to corroborate the information, that would be super useful. Um, and that could potentially change things within those camps. There are already local NGOs working on the ground with getting folks uh, who are in refugee camps, internally displaced people, or especially women. Uh, we spoke with an organization who was based in Nigeria, and they're desperately trying to get uh, victims to report violations, but they have no clue how to get them uh, to report directly. And typically, they're in the practice of sending out paralegals who they have difficulties uh, engaging with primarily because they're afraid of of being watched by the perpetrator. So I think this has uh, immense value. And I think that's sort of the, the area that interests me the most about working with the whistle is the real application it has for, for people. The, the other um, issue that we've seen is that um, verification takes a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it requires a lot of expertise around these tools. Mm-hmm. And so human rights researchers may want to use this material, but A, they don't have the training mm-hmm. and it's hard for them to get the time to get the training in these tools. Mm-hmm. B, these tools are changing a lot or all the time. Um, and, and C, um, just being able to, even if they know how to do it, being able to verify something might take them quite a long time because right now there's no kind of as it were, dashboard. So they have to go to each individual tool and um, consult it and mm. sort of bring that all together. And so what we are hoping is that by by having the dashboard, it's going to save them time. They can verify more information. And also they don't necessarily have to be continually up to date with all the, all the tools and sort of know exactly how to use all of them because it's sort of all of that is automated behind the scenes for them. Mm-hmm. And the tools are incorporated already so they don't have to choose which tools to use so it consolidates the resources yeah. of all these different tools and so with this dashboard project do you have a timeline of when this will be officially launched or <laughs> are, you know or how long you know because how long has this been going when did you start this project and then where where does it look like it's going in the future sure. well here here's what i will say about this is that um uh i had no idea matt you probably knew because you've developed an app before but i had no idea how much um research and kind of meticulous coding and all of that goes into developing something like this in a robust fashion, especially when you have to take security um, so centrally into account. Um, So this started out maybe, I think it was a year and a half or two and a half years ago for me, almost, um, uh, working in a critical coding course here at Cambridge where we had a week and I got to work with someone who was in the computer lab and we were working on a, on a problem that I that, that we sort of identified as interesting and this was something from my research and we only scratched the surface and so we've been working on it for a really long time and the team has been doing an excellent job of the research around the user communities, what they're looking for, um, what's getting in the way of them using technology, um, how we could connect with them. Um, and so I think... The lesson learned from me, um, and any any kind of technologist would say to me, "Duh," <laughs> is that actually this this stuff is really really hard to do, and it is really complicated, and it takes much longer than you think, and the coding takes a very very long time. 
Um, the programming takes a long time. Um, so we are now sort of getting near the end of a research stage um, around uh, NGO users and moving forward, hopefully with a partner to develop a test case. Um, and we have funding to do three test cases, and then we hope to roll out um, more broadly after that. Cool. Well, that is very, those are some very exciting developments. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, one criticism of digital media has been that it may actually reduce the incentives of people to take action, concrete action on human rights in terms of what's been called clicktivism, where you just post, you know, a Facebook status or you just share a video of, you know, human rights violation. Hopefully it is a verified, accurate video um, in, the, in the cases that we're talking about. Um, yeah. How serious of a problem do you think that is? Yeah, I think the clicktivism issue is very interestingly complicated, much more complicated than the kind of um, sort of dismissal of clicktivism leads us to believe. And actually, I think and this taps into a lot of um, uh, my thinking and the thinking of other scholars around symbolic power and the power of words. Right. And the power of visibility. And so, first of all, with clicktivism, um, I think calling something clicktivism uh, debases it. And so it, it takes away the meaning and the significance of that action by kind of ridiculing it. Um, so I think it's a dangerous term to use anyway for activity that can actually be quite um, beneficial. And I understand the criticism that it takes away from other more meaningful activity, but I don't think the research bears that out. I think the research shows this might be one activity that we do in activism along all kinds of different forms of political behavior. Um, and I want to just say, I, there's a great article by Stephanie V, which is called, I think, In Defense of Clicktivism or In Defense of Slacktivism. Um, and she, her point is that um, she looks at the case. Um, there was a meme that was put out by, um, I forget what the organization is called exactly, but it was around gay marriage. And it was an image you everyone was changing on Facebook their their profile photo to mm -hmm. this image, right? Mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago, and um, this was being dismissed as kind of clicktivism and slacktivism. But her point was that you know there's a lot of power in the symbolic, and doing that is an act of solidarity that can mean a lot to someone who might feel otherwise isolated. Not only that, but as we unfortunately have seen with Trump uh, and this election, <laughs> is that saying something you know the symbol a symbolic act makes something legitimate, right? So it just having the visibility of that whatever it is that you you're you're trying to share through clicktivism or whatever um, can actually change the political dynamics around that issue by mm. making certain discourses legitimate uh, by making them making them putting them on the agenda by making them something around which it is um, possible and permissible to speak. Um, so I actually see um, the kind of concept of clicktivism as problematic, not because of the behavior, but because of the term itself. Mm. And actually, the behavior can be quite wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so the term itself has some inherent negative judgment of the act already before you even discuss its merits or shortcomings. Is right. That, yeah. Right. And yeah. so that and so calling it clicktivism is in itself a symbolic act. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. Which sort of denigrates this behavior. But isn't there a problem as well with uh, people who are uh, sort of engaging with, let's just call it collectivism for the sake of argument, um, and don't necessarily know what it's about, but just follow through as sort of the mainstream thing to do? So if your friends are taking on some sort of profile picture banner or sharing a video, you go along and do it without necessarily knowing the uh, intricacies of the issue. 
Yeah, I think there's, but I think that's the case with all information, mm -hmm. right? So that there's there's some there's social norms around how we publicly publicly profess our interests, mm -hmm. uh, and I think this it applies to this case as well as to any other way in which we engage in discussions with each other. Okay. So it sounds like the bad, so the bandwagon effect essentially is what you're right. noticing or highlighting. But that, yeah, so you're saying that that exists. That's not a problem inherent in collectivism mm -hmm. or the, or I shouldn't call it that. But yeah, <laughs> of like posting, you know, posting social media mm -hmm. um, opinions or ideas uh, or so, so human rights ideas online um, that that exists across the yeah. board. The, um, the problem there is um, with the options that were given in terms of expressing you know, jumping on the bandwagon and right. I, I don't know if you remember the criticism that facebook got for after the paris attacks you could yes. make your you could really mm -hmm. easily make, click on one button mm -hmm. and make your your profile picture a Par parisian flag or sorry french flag but at the same time there were those attacks in beirut and you did not have the option mm -hmm. there was not a facebook sponsored mm -hmm. meme around those attacks so so i think you know to turn the issue around i think sometimes the possibilities that were given are, are what is the problem where the problem lies not necessarily a response to them that's yeah that's an interesting point as well i could see the same thing for like the lgbt issue in the united states face when marriage equality was passed i think it facebook officially did this there's like you could make your profile picture rainbow yeah i'm pretty sure that was like officially through facebook but for like maybe a more controversial issue like black lives matter that i know that hasn't existed um in in any official endorsement capacity yeah so facebook had, and this is also relevant to th there's the whole um the news of what's trending on yeah. facebook yeah and they've recently changed that mm -hmm. to be automatic rather than have humans selecting that and this gets kind of back to the verification issue they've promoted stories that are inaccurate and right. not true at all but because they were trending they showed up on people's news feeds <laughs> So this is one of the pitfalls of again, uh, quote unquote, um, collectivism, right? So I, I feel like one of one of the one of the sort of grievances I suppose I have with it is, again, imagine you're sharing something that you think looks legitimately like an important issue, and you can totally understand where the video or the image or the text piece is coming from, but suppose that it's false. Mm -hmm. What then? So this is back to why is it problematic that fake videos or fake material goes viral? And what sort of role does collectivism play in in sort of perpetuating that? I've seen some research that shows that when it comes to um, online news institutions, that uh, there's a trend towards virality being more important than verification. Right. So this kind of clickbait material where you you know people share it because it, it taps into something that is important to them, um, that or, or it's exciting or interesting. That mm -hmm. that ends up getting. Um, given prominence in terms of how, what news is featured sure. on their sites rather than you know stopping slowing it down verifying it etc mm -hmm. no it's 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 interesting because i i suppose i recently read that google was doing uh, a fact checker on their news uh, platform which was interesting because uh i guess if that starts intersecting with the things that people share that they care about that adds another element of credibility at least from from the perspective of those of us who are who are researching this or looking into this um, from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, um, I think two points there. Um, one is that uh, I'm not quite sure how that mechanism works, but I've looked at other kind of either crowdsourced or algorithmic um, mechanisms for assessing truth. And there is a possibility of gaming these things. And so you see, for example, you see this in content moderation um, on Facebook where the opponents of a cause will flag it as inappropriate 
in an attempt to silence it. What it, you know, even if it's not at all inappropriate, it, it's sort of an attempt to to get rid of that information. So. I think when whenever you introduce these mechanisms, you end up also introducing gaming. Mm. Um, and, and the second the second issue that that brings up for me, which is something that I want to research going forward, is um, the sense that we are kind of, and I think it's a return to an era um, in which we all have to verify information on our own. I think that this is again, this is a hunch of mine that I want to investigate with research, but that we. Had an, we've had an, a, a, an era in which we outsourced our verification. We relied on our newspapers to verify for us, for example, um, and we trusted them. And now that has, whole system is collapsing a bit and we're all running across information all the time that we have to decide um, whether or not it's true. And so verification is a skill that we are returning to and we are relearning. Huh. So, yeah, I have to design a research project to test this <laughs> <laughs> hypothesis, but I think it's really interesting. That makes me really excited and I suppose optimistic because I feel we're we're in a sort of, we've been in a space of a lot of meme politics and just uh, sharing, you know, short videos that were, that had an AJ plus sign on it or a now this sign on it. And, and yeah, it's, it's interesting, I suppose, if one was to devolve that down to the level of the individual. So with... Was another theme that I think we've hi- kind of highlighted throughout the conversation is the pluralization of who can report human rights violations and then how they can take action after. Um, one example that I can think of just back in the United States, the, f- the fact that we have instant cameras that most people are carrying instant cameras now with their iPhones, we've been able to see this rise of videos of police v- brutality specifically against um, black lives that this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon, but it's new that we can verify it so, or that we can record it so instantly. But one problem that I know a lot of people in the United States have noted about this is that even though we have now this awesome verified evidence of tremendous wrongdoings um, that seem to be very systemic in nature, there's been a lack of political action And that even when we have videos or body cameras of the police officers committing horrendous acts, they still get off and they don't they suffer no or very little consequences. So how can we connect verification um, with not just verifying it, but getting actors, different state actors or our, our local governments to take action with that verified knowledge? I mean, I think if we knew the answer to that, yeah. we would have <laughs> solved a lot of society's yeah. problems. But I think and this is something I've been thinking about as well, because um, this is something that that certainly plagues, um, you know, the human rights information is that there's way more information than there is capacity to act on it, not just in terms of institutional capacity, but also in terms of um, our own attention. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing I've been wondering about, and I think this is something that that comes up in um, in other areas like um, truth commissions, et cetera, is that is there value and to what extent is it appropriate to say there is value or to what extent is it a cop out to say that there is value just in the documenting? That we're discussing these things now. I think that's absolutely true where, you know, without these video, these verified videos, 
we wouldn't i don't think we would be having certainly the same the discussion that we're having today about this and it's and also just to qualify my comments from earlier as well it's not like there's been no political action whatsoever i know in baltimore which is where i'm my family's from um there's been an entire just justice department investigation based on um the incidences that have happened there and they found tremendous wrongdoings by the police um not just in terms of like actual shootings but in terms of just sexist abuse abuse of prisoners it's been so they found a lot more than what's just in those videos that had um sparked some of these investigations nationwide so i think that can lead us into a better direction in terms of respecting human rights in the urban environment and um that sort of thing so yeah well, I think we are about out of time, but thank you so much um, for joining us in this discussion today. Um, Ella, we really appreciate um, you being here with us. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us or send us ideas about future episodes. Please subscribe and join us next episode where my friend and Declarations panelist Max Curtis will be talking with Dr. Graham Denyer Willis about how human rights play out in the hustle and bustle of the modern city. Thank you for tuning in to Declarations. Declarations.